sport should be uh, about creating an environment that's inclusive of everybody and their opinions and views. And it should be about the emotion that that generates on the pitch. Not That shouldn't uh, spill out into the crowd in terms of them behaving badly. Hi, welcome to the Halftime Snacks. My name is Ronena Inbinder. This show features the stories of talented people working in sports. Are you ready? Let's go. five humans I've ever met. This man has over 20 years of experience working in different sports industry sectors, including ESPN, Formula One, World Rugby, and the NBA. He's a master in the future of sports, tech and innovation, commercial partnerships, media, sponsorships, and other topics. Today, he's the founder of Sports Consultancy 26 West, where they specialize in the business side of sports, media rights, sponsorships, and more. It is my honor to host such a legend for a quick halftime snack. Ladies and gentlemen, Murray Barnett. Thank you very much for having me. That's a very uh, good over-the-top intro to somebody that's uh, just been slaving away for 20 years rather than uh, knowing anything special. <laughs> Murray, it's an absolute pleasure to host you. Thank you for taking my invitation to the halftime snacks. And I want to start off with an icebreaker and I want to ask you what is your favorite meal to have at a game of your favorite sport, which I guess it's soccer. So if you go to a soccer match, what's your favorite meal that you like to eat there? Well, it's a good question. I would say that eating is cheating at a soccer match. But uh, I think the interesting thing is that in each individual sport, you have such different rituals for what you eat and what you drink. So for example, if you go to a Wimbledon, it's famous for sort of more like a, a champagne or a Pimm's cocktail and strawberries and cream. Whereas if you go to an NFL match or a, or a, or a college, uh, college football match in the States, it always makes me think of, you know, burgers and ribs and beer. And I think uh, it's interesting how every sport has its own different rituals around the food and drink that you have at them. Yeah, I agree with you. I feel like Everyone has their own favorite snack, but mine, I would say my favorite snack is probably a hamburger on a any of the matches. And I want to switch over now to talk about um, your consultancy business because, wow, you started the consultancy business in the middle of a global pandemic. So I wonder what was that like or what were some of the challenges of doing that? Can you tell us about that specifically? Yeah, so... What are, I left Formula One just prior to the start of the pandemic, and I'd originally planned to take a, a chunk of time off, try and recharge after such a long time uh, of continuous work. And the consultancy came up almost by accident because it, the, the interesting thing is, although everybody's going through these very difficult times, or I should say because people are going through these very difficult times, there's lots of people out there that are looking for support and advice. And so... Uh, whilst I was taking some time out to recharge my, my batteries a bit, people were calling me up and saying, could you help me out with this project or could you give me a bit of advice here? Because especially as the, uh, as the road forward is so unclear, 
They wanted to make sure that they had the right commercial strategies, a good understanding of where their revenues were going to come in the future, how they should think about dividing their commercial assets up. And uh, the answers to those questions became much more important in a time of uncertainty than perhaps they would be when everything's functioning as normal. So it's gone surprisingly well in terms of uh, a lot of people out there needing support and advice. And the other thing that I've really enjoyed with it, because I enjoyed about it because it's a new thing for me, is it allows you to be quite self-indulgent and work on a wide variety of different projects. Uh, one of the things I've learned is you have to tell yourself not to say yes to everything just because it sounds kind of fun. You have to kind of make sure that you keep yourself limited to the number of projects in order to make sure that you're devoting the right time and attention to those because it's easy to get like all consumed by by too many things all sort of crashing together at the same time. And that's not often a problem that you have, I think, when you've got a sort of a full time job. Um, but it's but it's been fascinating. And, you know, you get to, number one, reconnect with people that you haven't spoken to for a long time, meet a whole bunch of new people and work with some really, really cool people. And, you know, my knowledge has gone through the roof over the last year, uh, probably more so than any sort of permanent job I've had in terms of being exposed to more different types of sporting environment and different sporting challenges. So, yeah, it's, it's been surprisingly successful considering the environment that we're in. Yeah, and that's interesting because you worked at some really awesome brands such as ESPN, Formula One, the NBA. So I wonder which one of them was your favorite and why do you remember that to be your favorite place to work or what are some of the most important takeaways that you had from working at uh, some of those companies? I think you always look at the beginning of your career in a particular industry as perhaps being the most important because it sort of forms your outlook and your perspective on, on where you go. And so to, to that end, the NBA was the first job that I had in, in sports. And it was and still is, you know, the benchmark for many sports marketing organizations. You know, I often catch myself thinking, what would the NBA do in this particular situation or, or, or challenge? Because I really do think that, number one, U.S. leagues in general are light years ahead of everybody else in sports marketing. And number two, the way that the culture was set up inside the NBA, I think, was very conducive to being very creative. What do I mean by that? Well, very, very clear purpose of what they were trying to do. Uh, very uh, well-structured management, which uh, encouraged people to uh, come up with creative ideas and to uh, discuss things and a very meticulous and methodical way in which they plan everything that they do. So, you know, to the general consumer, it can often look like they're uh, so just, hey, look, you know, it's, it, it's like the swan, right? You know, they're floating over the surface and everything's going great, but actually they're paddling like mad underneath and uh, putting a lot of time and effort into every decision that they make and, and everything that they do. And as I said, they're, they're meticulous and they do everything uh, to a very, very high level. So I have a lot of affection for that. But, you know, again, you know, I could pick out things from ESPN and from, from Formula One that are just incredible about those organizations. So uh, it's a very difficult question to ask me. Would you say that you have a specific idea of how you wanted to structure your sports career or it kind of developed as it went or you or in your mind when you were just starting you were thinking that you wanted to work probably first in a in a global brand then in a more niche or more specific like such as the world of rugby that is not so specific but it's less popular than the nba and then just you know 
try to find your path slowly, slowly, or or do you feel that it developed? Uh, you know, opportunities came up as you went, and then you just took them as they as they came. Great question. I think you need to have a plan, but you have to accept that that plan is going to change. So the analogy I always like to use is. You know, you've got to have a map and you've got to uh, and know where your destination is and try and plan a route towards that destination. But as you're taking those steps along the road, you have to have to accept that you may end up taking a different route and, and you may be and you may end up going to a different path and you may even end up at a different destination. But if you don't have that kind of idea of where it is that you want to go in the end, you'll never take that first step. And so for me, I actually started off more in the sort of the marketing side of media in general. And then uh, two things happened. One is, um, as I was kind of working for a bunch of TV stations and TV broadcasters, I started to realize that sport was the content that people cared about the most. And so it had this immediacy. It was, you know, you have to watch sport live and people are completely irrational in, in what they'll uh, pay to watch their favorite teams and so on. It, there's that real passion with it, which is, you get it sometimes with certain series and certain movies and certain entertainment forms, but you don't get that as viscerally or as deeply as you do in, in sport and as consistently as you do in sport. So I definitely realized as I kind of went on that journey that sport was an area that I, that I would like to, if I got the opportunity to specialize more in. And then as I moved into sport, I uh, very frankly saw that if you are bringing money into the organization, that people take your opinions more seriously and you get invited to, to more of the big meetings, shall I say. And so I realized I wanted to move more from that marketing side of, of sport into more of the sort of revenue generation side. And so when I uh, uh, was given the opportunity to, to, to move more into the sort of uh, sales side of things, I grabbed it with both hands and, and then, you know, I, I, I'm a great believer that you just have to keep your eyes open for the right opportunities. And, you know, sometimes you, you, if, you, if you're too prescriptive about how you're going to uh, go with something or, or what your goal is, you don't see the opportunities arising around you. So, you know, I think that there's no such thing as lucky people. I think that some people just recognize everybody gets luck, but only a few people can recognize what luck looks like. Mm. And so... I think you have to keep your eyes open to what it is. And that's why my career has taken a few different directions than perhaps I expected, because there were some great opportunities that came up that I thought, well, actually, it feels right. And actually, you know, that's probably a really important thing. I've always gone uh, not to try and overanalyze everything too much, but to try and go with a little bit more about how I feel about the right opportunity. And, you know, back to your sort of comment earlier that, um, you know, NBA being a big sport compared to rugby actually you know in some markets rugby is a much bigger sport than the nba and actually one of the, th the reasons why i ended up going to world rugby was the opportunity to work on a rugby world cup in my home country i just thought if i don't say yes to this opportunity it, it, I, I you know i'm always going to be wondering what if and and i it's probably a uh, that's probably another really important point is I always said to myself, I don't ever want to look back on the things that I've done and say, well, what if I had done that? Or what if I had done something else? Um, and so when the right, when an opportunity that feels right in my gut comes along, I, I tend to want to leap at it. Yeah. I love the analogy of the map, you know, having an idea of where you want to go and then try to work it backwards. Not always it's going to work your way, but having that idea kind of gives you a, 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 
project a projection of how the path looks like and i feel like uh, in your case you kind of took opportunities and you've realized things that you you weren't aware of before and that you had in your original map and you just need to update the map i would say that's the that's the idea you know roads change um paths quicker paths or better paths or more uh, lucrative paths may change on the way so that's how you readjust and you update what you want to do so i think that's awesome the one other thing i i would add to that is and i'd, I'd say to anybody that that you know if i was giving a talk at a, at a high school or to somebody that was just coming into the industry i'd say always be curious hmm. and that was one of the things that i think really worked for me was I, I've always just been genuinely fascinated in media and uh, and the sports and entertainment businesses. And so, you know, whether it's at NBA, whether it's at, at, at Disney ESPN, you know, probably to an annoying level, I'd be going to different colleagues and saying, oh, tell me how you did that. Or why did it work that way? Or what's the background for that decision? And it's just because I was interested. And I think two things happen is it makes you much better at your job if you understand everything else that kind of impacts it or why other decisions that are not your responsibility have been made. Um, but it also means that other people want to collaborate with you if they see that you're interested in, in what they do. And also, frankly, you, you, it's a way to get noticed. You know, people will uh, recognize what you do more if they see that you're actively interested in what they do. Yeah, I, I like this quote that says, don't tell me, but show me. So I feel like being curious actively instead of just talking about something, just, you know, really involve yourself in, in, the, in the topics or the things that you are interested about, either if it's media or if it's sponsorships or whatever. Try to get, try to get along with the people there and then see what they're up to and see what the projects are they're working and try to get involved as much as you can. I feel like that's how you can have a proactive practice of your curiosity in, in a sense. I think that that's high value recommendation from you, Murray. So I, I really appreciate it. And now I do want to switch over to the, to the topics where you're, you know, an expert around. Uh, we talked about it with, uh, before our call, we talked about, you know, some, some of the things that you, you work on, some of the things that you're, you're thinking about. Uh, so I want to, touch on the first one that that is electrification in sports and the moment you told me this I was like what is this guy talking about I've never in my life heard about this thing uh, so I want you to explain us you know as if we were five-year-old uh, children me and my the listeners because potentially no one really knows what you're going to be talking about so explain us that like if we were five years old what's electrification in sports How is it tied to mobility and sustainability? And what types of technologies can we expect to be leveraged for it in the future? If you think about uh, motorsports as being, whether that's you know bikes or whether that's cars, th th that's it. those are huge sports today. There's increasing vogue in terms of road going vehicles to be uh, electrified. And there are some challenges with that. You know, it's, as you know, in, in, in Formula E, The cars had to change batteries halfway through and various things like that. But as technology has developed, you're now getting to be uh, to have uh, cars which don't need the batteries changing, which are faster than they've been before. Uh, the whole electric car thing, largely through Tesla, but through others as well, has become uh, very much in vogue in terms of, uh, I, I guess you could say that Elon Musk has made electrification sexy. Um, And now those, the, the technology that's being used in, in the automotive industry is now expanding out into others. So we've seen 
some electrification around bikes. You've obviously got electric scooters. You've got electric boats now. And they're all, uh, number one, environmentally friendly. Uh, number two, uh, can offer a compelling uh, spectacle um, and are high tech. Now to just take each of those uh, one by one. So the sustainable aspect of it uh, means that actually it can get to places where it wouldn't be otherwise. Formula E races in city centers, it wouldn't be able to do that if it was a normally aspirated you know, uh, car engine with all of the exhaust fumes and so on. Um, number two is that it's now become a great spectacle because the technology has got to a level where it's uh, completely um, uh, able to, to create a spectacle that's, that's worthy of watching. And perhaps most importantly, there are a number of huge companies which are heavily invested in the technology and they need a proof of concept to be able to show people how great this is. And so whether we're talking about e-bikes, whether we're talking about Formula E, whether we're talking about uh, Extreme E uh, or, or the, the soon to come uh, electric boats, these are all technologies which people are investing a, a ton of money in at the moment, which means that they uh, are highly vested in seeing great showcases for, the, for those, uh, that, that technology and sports offers an emotion like nothing else. And so it's natural that you wanna have the fastest e-bike, the most spectacular uh, extreme e-car, whatever it is. Uh, and, and those are the most successful against everybody else in the market, because ultimately that's gonna help sell your technology. And I think that this, this marriage of sport and technology is something which we're seeing in a much wider context outside of electrification in the sense that uh, more and more uh, to do with, partly to do with esports, but also just our general exposure to technology in our daily lives means that that link between sport and technology is becoming really, really uh, close. And people are much more open to understanding the technology input that goes into sport and, and what that can mean for uh, and entertainment. And sport is no longer competing against each other. Sport is now competing against video games, or it's competing against you know other forms of music and so on. And so it's all about how do you make it the most entertaining and technology has a massive part to play with that, either in terms of the technology employed in terms of say an e-bike or whatever, but also uh, in terms of creating a, an on-screen experience that, that's really compelling for the viewer. Yeah, I see what you mean. and. I think I never thought about, you know, the sustainability side of the electricity brought into sports. I, the things that I, I was actually th thinking about is, you know, what are the systems in, let's say, potentially a soccer stadium that would require energy uh, derived from diesel, for instance. And I, so I thought maybe, you know, the trucks that they use to cut the grass, the probably uh, some of some of the machines or how they produce the energy used in a stadium. So I thought it was more directed towards that, but I understand how it can be applied mostly on the automotive side of the industry, which is, you know, as you mentioned, motorsports, uh, Formula One, cars. And, and I think that we, we, we'll also see more of the electrification side on stadiums and on renewable energy used to power specific events. And as I like, as you mentioned, how it's all about comparing it between the entertainment industry, not not really soccer versus football or versus, you know, baseball. It's more about, you know, the sport versus Netflix versus Spotify versus the cinema. And I think that's 
That's super interesting. And now I want to switch over, Murray, to talk about your role in the industry. I remember you mentioned you you vow a lot for uh, sport for all. So I want to know if you can share with us a couple of the steps required to create, you know, economic, gender, and race equality in sports, and how is your company, 26 West uh, Consulting, working towards it? Uh, when we talk about like gender and and sort of equal opportunities for all races, I, I'm not necessarily talking about like on the pitch or on the court. I mean it more in the sense of the people running it. You know, like if you take gender equality, 50% of the planet is female. So it's just good business sense to have more women working in senior management positions within sport so that they're making sure that the, that the female audience is also addressed. And I'm not saying that women only understand what women want. But the point being is that if you have a good mixture of men and women running a particular sports organization, you're more likely to have a, a strong, rounded and inclusive type environment. And I think that that's what we all strive for is a is a sport is sports where you want to go with your with your family and your friends. And it's not um, sports is very tribal, but the tribe should be the a large inclusive tribe. In my opinion, it shouldn't be about like actually it's a license to go and behave badly. You know, I think if you look at soccer and especially sort of English soccer in the past and, and South American soccer probably has a very bad reputation for sort of violence and so on. And I, I think that that's, that's not the right attitude. You know, I, one of the great things about a sport like rugby is you don't have any segregation in stadiums and you can sit next to somebody who is, um, who's, from, who's supporting the opposite team and you can have sport in the best possible way where you're ragging on each other. You're kind of, you know, making fun if they, if they screw things up or whatever. And it's all just accepted as part of the sporting experience. And, you know, nine times out of 10, you'll be walking out of that, that stadium, whether you win, win, lose or draw arm in arm and going to have another beer together somewhere. And, and that to me is what sports should all be about is it's about, enjoying the experience you can sort of you know be emotional about it and be attached to it but that shouldn't become a sort of uh something where you're better than somebody else just based on the soccer team that you support or something like that and so i think that you need to create an environment that projects that kind of support if you like in terms of that it's okay to sit together and you don't have to worry that it's going to be violent. Sport should be uh, about creating an environment that's inclusive of everybody and their opinions and views. And it should be about the emotion that that generates on the pitch. Not That shouldn't uh, spill out into the crowd in terms of them behaving badly. And then, as I mentioned earlier, you know, when you think about behind the scenes, the more diversity of opinion that you have and thought that you have inside your organization, which will largely come from a diversity of workforce, I think is actually just a, a very good business decision. Diversifying the type of people that runs these businesses, you know, the ones that operate these businesses and the ones that are the faces of these organizations can help uh, in the, you know, lower, lower end, meaning just like just the fans or followers or even people on, on social networks, you know, you, you don't really need to be in, in the stadium to, to see or to feel violence. I remember, you know, every time I, my, I'm a Chelsea fan, and so every time I go on, on Twitter and I, and I see that Chelsea loses, I know you're a Tottenham fan, but whatever. Uh, I, I remember that, you know, every time, every time Chelsea loses, I just go on, the, on, on their Twitter page and I see the comments that are 
you know, like people coming, fans commenting around Chelsea losing. And sometimes I get offended, you know, by the things that they say or the language that they use. So I guess that it's all about also changing what the perception of being a fan could, could mean for, for people because, uh, and probably that will come from, from also the organization and the head and the administration by just, you know, being able to set specific limits to what they're able to accept uh, as attitude and as language in their website, in their, in their social media, in their stadiums, and just, you know, working towards that as a process. I feel like you need to solve that from the, from the management, but also in every single, you know, because at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's a brand and it's how, it's how also people uh, outside of the brand will perceive you. So it's also like trying to heal your brand in a sense and that could potentially come from starting by uh, diversifying and creating equal opportunities around race, gender, you know, social and economic status on society and just creating opportunities equal for everyone else. And since, you know, we don't have so much time, I want to, you know, jump on two more topics before we leave. So I'm just going to switch over the question and I want to ask you specifically, since you've been so much of your time surrounded by, you know, media rights, traditional, you know, broadcasting, the, the sort of like the business around it. I want to know how uh, the direct to consumer business model and the democratization of sport will disrupt that sport, that area of sports, meaning the media rights and the traditional broadcasting business. And what's the timeline that you think it's going to happen? And like if you think that it's being potentially mismanaged in a way now meaning that big companies are not really realizing the change and they're going to be eaten by in a way by um, startups that are just developing things that are easier and better for the industry i think there's, there's two main points in here one is the diversification of platforms so what you're seeing is that all sports organizations or sports rights holders Uh, have many more distribution mechanisms which require a lot more effort. So in the old days, you pretty much just had TV stations and you'd put out a live match or a live game and maybe some highlights and that was it. Well, now with, you know, Snapchat, YouTube, uh, you know, Facebook, Twitter, whatever it is, you now have to create a thousand different types of content for a thousand different platforms. And it's important that you address the audiences that, that are on each of those. And even in the early days of that, you would see people just taking the TV feed, cutting a little bit out and putting it out on Twitter. Well, you can't do that because the audience that's on Twitter wants a con content that's very different to somebody that's sitting there watching it on TV. And so uh, increasingly the, 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 the rights holders or the sports that are being successful are the ones that are addressing all of those different platforms. You're also seeing this, this kind of trend of um, lots of new platforms come up and people are not sure whether they're going to be successful or not. So you have um, situations where you're creating content for a platform that may not be there tomorrow. And so actually you're trying to work out, you have to be on all of them, but you also have to be constantly analyzing their success or failure. So, you know, we've seen Clubhouse come out in the last, whatever it is, few months, And you see a ton of people starting to use that. Now, none of us know if Clubhouse is still going to be around in a year's time. But it, the important thing is that you jump on it, you learn something from it, and then you 
if it's not resonating with your audience, you move on to a, to a different type of platform. So, you know, content creation has become super important and making sure that that's highly targeted for every platform and audience that you're trying to reach. And, and, and that's a good segue into the other part of, of your question, I think, which is about increasingly sports and rights holders have a direct to consumer relationship. So let's take the US, for example. Uh, before uh, NFL, just to pick somebody at random, goes and signs a deal with ESPN. Well, it becomes ESPN's problem to work out how they're going to make NFL relevant for the audience. What all this different, all these different content uh, uh, opportunities uh, brings brings up, and also the desire to create an over-the-top direct-to-consumer product means increasingly, in that example, NFL has to understand directly themselves who their customers are. You know, they don't just have, you know, you could argue that, you know, 10 years ago, NFL's customers, they only had like five or six, Fox, CBS, NBC, ABC, ESPN, NFL Network, maybe that, that simple. You only had to understand how those six, let's call them people worked. Now they've got to understand how 110 million people work in order to continue to make their, their, their product relevant and uh, understand how they price it and what kind of content to push to them if they want to go direct to consumer. And so increasingly you're seeing that data is becoming a very, very, customer data is becoming very, very important to leagues. I think you'll see a massive growth in research departments in terms of people really being able to analyze and unlock the value that, that exists with customers and, and exactly what those customers want to do. And you won't see people like ESPN as a, as a content aggregator going away, but I think you'll see that, that, that their role will change over time. And you know, already you've seen how successful ESPN has been with ESPN Plus as a kind of aggregator of content, but in a different way. I think what you'll see is that, you know, I'm going to keep using the, um, the example of NFL just to articulate the point is there'll always be a bunch of people that are desperate to, to know everything that they can about NFL. And so they may buy NFL OTT uh, product or NFL TV. But then there's going to be a whole bunch of other people who are NFL casuals. They like NFL, but they also like a bunch of other sports. They don't necessarily stay in for a particular match. And so therefore, they, you know, they, they appreciate an ESPN, which is aggregating content that they like in an environment that they understand, along with news and other curated content that they've got with the pundits that they like and so on and so forth. And so I think you're just seeing it as yet another different mechanism for uh, how um, NFL in this case reaches, reaches their consumers, but it's becoming more and more complex and difficult. It, the, the industry is maturing in terms of needing to really go that extra mile to, to extract value from their customers. Yeah, that's so much, so much to think about. And the halftime is not enough time to, <laughs> To discuss it fully but uh, i think that's a great answer and i think that it really gives us a lot to think and and create expectation for the future of of the industry and i think that's exciting Murray. thank you for sharing and you know we've really been out of time but i want to ask you this one last question <laughs> and that's one quote that you live by and and why do you do you live by that quote one that seems to resonate a lot at the moment, and I guess partly because uh, of the crisis that we've just been through, has been, you know, allegedly Mike Tyson said that everybody has a strategy until they get punched in the face. You never quite know what's around the corner. Um, but to me, that means you have to be agile. You have to know how to adapt and, you know, figuratively duck and weave around the punches as they, as they come at you. 
I love that, Murray. Thank you so much for sharing, and I want to thank you so much for coming to the Halftime Snacks. It was an absolute pleasure to host you. Man, you're a legend. You're, you're, you're an expert in so many topics that I feel like we could go on and have a conversation for hours. But sadly, halftime is only 30 minutes long. But I want to thank you again for coming to the Halftime Snacks and devoting a, a bit of your time for me and for the listeners. Before you leave, I want to thank you for listening. To hear this or any other halftime snack, check out the full archive on my website, which you can find on the show notes. See you next week!